All right, we're in lesson 27 this morning, and we're going to be looking at Paul's journey here, his first missionary journey as he goes to Perga and Antioch, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 13 through 41. So let's look, first of all, he's going to be in Perga. So let's look at verse 13. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia. John departing from them and returned to Jerusalem. All right, so here's what I want you to see. Paul and his ministry group sailed from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. Now, Pamphylia is a Roman province, okay? A Roman province. Well, what do you mean by a province? Well, kind of like a state. So it'd be like, you know, Paul and his group left Hagerstown, Maryland, and came to Kerwinsville in Pennsylvania. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's a province here. Now, Perga was the chief city of the province, and during its domination by, uh, by the Greek Greeks, during the Greek time of the Greek kings, it had a temple of Artemis located there. So Christianity never flourished in the city as it did in other cities in Asia Minor. So when they got to there, John Mark, remember John Mark? Okay. Upon arriving in Perga, John Mark left the group and departed for Jerusalem. So I don't know, maybe something happened while they were in, in Cyprus. Maybe it was the confrontation with the sorcerer. Something happened there that John Mark decides it's time for him to go home. Remember, he was from originally from Jerusalem, so he decides to go home. Now, now we're going to see in verses 14 through 41 that they're going to be in Antioch. Now, you just said they just left Antioch in Syria. Now, they're going to be in Antioch, which is near Pisidia. Now, you say, you mean there's two towns named the same? Well, yeah, that happens. So, for instance, you know, up here is Greenville, okay? Up here on the Greenville Pike is Greenville, all right? Now, have you noticed that there's a Greenville in every state? Like, there's a Greenville, South Carolina. My dad was born in Greenville, North Carolina, so a lot of times they shared similar names of of cities. Now, Antioch is very interesting because Antioch comes from one of the Greek kings of that time, Antiochus. And so what it was is that these folks decided to name their town in honor of the Greek king, Antiochus. That would be like if we decided to change the name of our town to, if let's take the current president, Obama. We called it Obamaville, okay? Or we change it. We want to change it to the next president coming in, Trump City. Did you understand what I'm saying? They thought they could honor the king. Now, honoring the king back then was pretty significant because if you honored the king, then he would be nice to you and maybe you got food, okay? So they, so you had in the ancient world at this time, 13 different cities. Are you getting me here? 13 different big cities called Antioch, okay? So we only know of two of them, Antioch in Syria, and now we're here in Antioch in Pisidia, 
Okay? So look with me. We're going to look, first of all, at verse 14. Look with me at verse 14. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. So, okay, here's what I want you to see. After leaving Perga, they arrived in Antioch and entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. They entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, you're going to find out, this is the very first journey, that this is the pattern that Paul establishes in his ministry. When he goes into town and he's there to share the gospel, he is not starting out fresh with just talking to every Greek there is who has no clue what he's talking about. He goes to people that have some sort of understanding of the scripture, and of course that would be the Jews. So the very first thing he does is he goes into the synagogue and presents Jesus to the Jews who were there. Okay? Very first thing, he goes to those who have an understanding and presents to them the gospel. Now, what do you think we can learn from that? In our ever-increasing secular culture that we're in. What do you think is the lesson there? That's exactly right, Tim. So if you are thinking about, okay, let's say you're at your workplace, okay? And you, first of all, let me just stop for a moment. Does everybody recognize, I want everybody to clue in on something. Just because somebody calls themselves a Christian does not mean they're a Christian. Do you understand me? Does everybody understand that? If you assume that just because somebody says they're a Christian, they're a Christian, you are foolish. You are foolish. Okay? Because just simply saying you're a Christian doesn't mean you're a Christian. There has to be something more to that. Okay? So just like Paul would say, just simply saying you're a Jew is you're not a Jew. Paul would say that. Okay? So what he does, what you do though, is when you're in the workplace, and as you are working with people, you get to know people because you work with them eight hours a day. So you get to know those who say they go to church, but then you realize, well, they're not really a Christian because of the way they're living or the way that they think or the way they talk. But they say they go to church, so they say maybe, okay, I'll use some names, I'll edit these out later. Maybe they say they go to the Methodist church or they go to the Presbyterian church or the Episcopal church. Now, you know, when they tell you the name of the church, you know that, well, the gospel's not preached there. But here's the thing, you have a basis of talking with them about Jesus because they at least have some sort of background in understanding the basics of Christianity, right? So you could start with them to start talking about the gospel. Now, here's the thing, now you might have a guy there who doesn't know anything about the Bible, doesn't, and that's very true today, you can find somebody like that. You can actually find a significant number of people, like four out of ten, who have no clue, have no no basis, have no understanding. You can talk to them, but you've got to realize your approach to them is going to have to be a little bit different than the guy who goes to a Methodist church. Do you understand? You say, George, I don't know if I agree with you. All right, well, let me give you some statistics. <clears throat> when Billy Graham was doing his evangelism, Billy hasn't done evangelism for the last ten years or more now. 
And, but when Billy Graham was doing his evangelism, the Billy Graham Association was very, um, they were very committed to keeping excellent statistics. Meaning, they kept track of everything from every crusade. And here's what they found. They found that of 90% of the people who responded at a Billy Graham crusade, 90% of the people who responded and got saved at a Billy Graham crusade, are you ready for this? Attended a church. 90% of those who went to a Billy Graham crusade attended a church that responded. What does that tell you? Only 10% of those who had never been to church responded at a Billy Graham crusade. What were you saying? Billy was preaching to those like Paul is. He goes into the synagogue. Do you understand? First place he goes because those people have an understanding of what he's talking about. Okay? Now, when we get to Acts chapter 17, where Paul is in Athens... We're going to see him talking to people who have no clue about what he's, what he's talking about. So the, so the lesson here for you and I is to reach out to those first, first reach out to those who have some sort of understanding. First. Then if there's no response there, then reach out to those who have no understanding at all. We're going to see that's Paul's pattern here. Okay? So there's something to learn here. All right? So now, let's look with me. So he goes in on the Sabbath. This is his custom. Look with me at verse 15. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Okay, so here's what's going on. In their day, a synagogue would be basically like our church here. They would meet every day, on every, day, every Sabbath, and because it's a city and it's a metropolitan area, they would have people come. And Jews, first place you would go if you were a Jew is go to the, the local synagogue to worship there. Now, what was custom, and it was custom here in this city as well, is that what they would do is, is if a guy came in, they would say, oh, Rob, it's good to see you. Glad you were here. Bring us a good word today. And then Rob would get up and share Something from the scripture for everybody else. Now, some of you would be like, I don't know that I would do that. Right? The reason why you would say that is because you haven't been trained that way. In the Jewish culture, in a Jewish world, and especially in a Jewish synagogue, every male would have to get up and share at some point. Often. So it would not be something unusual to be asked if you're coming in. Do you have a word? You know, you're coming from, you're coming from Palestine. Do you have a word to bring from God's word? You know? And so they get up and they share. So that's a normal thing. Okay? We don't do that in our churches, but they did back then in the synagogue. Now, so here's what happens. After the reading of the law, the synagogue rulers asked if they had a word to share. Now, look with me at verse 16 through 31. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. Now, who's the you who fear God? Gentiles, God-fearing Gentiles. 
The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. And for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. And after that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. Afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. And from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. And after John preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all people of Israel, and as John was finished, he, of course, said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to you the word of salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. All right, so let's take a look here. First of all, Paul called for their attention as he addressed those who were Jews and God-fearers. So he's calling for their attention, and he's going to go through the history of Israel with them. So he begins his message by referring to God bringing Israel out of Egypt. Now you're going to notice in Acts, Stephen did the same thing. They all refer to this event. They all refer to the founding of the nation Israel coming out of Egypt. That's a significant event in the history of Israel. Okay? In the history of Israel. So God put up with the actions of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. God put up with them for 40 years in the wilderness. And he did. And you and, you and I would be like, wow, why is he, if you read what's going on there, why would he put up with them? Why not just wipe them out? Because he talked about wiping them out a few times. Well, it's called grace, folks. And, why, and think about how much he puts up with you and I. Does he put up with us? Does he put up with us? Yeah, you better believe it he does. Aren't you glad? Okay. So he put up with them for 40 years. Now, when the seven nations of Canaan were destroyed, the land was given to Israel. Now, it says there in the text, by allotment. What they did was is they'd already divided up what the land was going to go to which tribe. And in the tribe, they divided up the land of the tribe to the families of that tribe. And so when you read through the Old Testament, you'll see 
the, the importance of being able to keep their inheritance. What inheritance are they talking about? Well, the land that was given to them by God when they came out of Egypt into Canaan. Into Canaan. That was significant to them. Now, the Lord gave Israel judges to rule over them until the time of Samuel. Samuel was the last judge. So he gave them judges. Some of the judges that we know of are, I just forgot his name. The dude had a problem with women. Samson, okay? Samson, Abimelech, okay? Abimelech, you know, is another one, okay? And uh, Gideon, okay? All of those, those were all judges, okay? I, I didn't remember his name. I just knew he had a problem with women, so, okay. All right, here we go. When Israel asked for a king, the Lord gave them Saul, son of Kish, for 40 years. All right, so they gave him Saul, and he didn't turn out to be a really good king. And then when he removed Saul, the Lord raised up David, a man after his own heart. Now let's just stop for a moment. Can I, can I tell you the difference between Saul and David and the reason of, their, of the one being rejected and the other accepted? Here's what I want to show you the difference. When you compare the morality of the two men, who do you think was the most moral and who was the most immoral of the two? Between David and Saul. Yes, David was more immoral than Saul. Now some of you are like, really? Yes, because Saul never took another man's wife. He never committed adultery like that. Never did. All right? In fact, he didn't just take another man's wife. Now, he did try to murder David, a political rival, but he didn't secretly get another guy killed who was the husband of the wife. Do you know what I'm saying? So as far as morality... Saul was probably a little bit more moral than David. Now, what was the difference between the two? Why Saul being rejected and David being accepted? So it wasn't on the basis of morality. Okay, he wanted to please God. He was wanting to be obedient. Even though he's messing up, his heart was after God. Would you say the same thing about Saul? No, not at all. Yeah, he, he was only more he was more consumed with himself. So okay, let me explain something to you. I want you to listen to me. Acceptance with God is not necessarily based on your morality. Now when I say that, I'm not giving you license to go out and do whatever you want to do now, okay? George just said we can go do what we want to do. No, I did not say that, okay? But what I'm trying to show you is, is that your morality is not a basis of acceptance with God. Your heart is. There's a difference. Do you understand what I'm saying? Your heart is. Your heart towards God is the basis of acceptance, not your morality. That's, there is a big difference there. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? There is a big difference there. All right? Now, from the offspring of David, God raised up Jesus as the Savior for Israel. So from the offspring of David, God raised up 
Jesus as the Savior for Israel. He tells us that Jesus appeared after John the Baptist was calling people to repentance. And we know that from the Gospels, okay? John stated that he was not the Messiah, but the one who would come after him. He's the forerunner, Isaiah's forerunner. It's not that he was the one, but that the one who would come after him. Okay? The one who would come after him. Paul called their attention again, called for their attention again, as the words of salvation have been sent to them. So, okay, up to this point, they're listening. He's gone through the history of Israel up to the point of Jesus and John's ministry. So now you want to see here that now he's telling them to pay attention. Listen to him. Pay attention. We see that in verse 26. That the word of salvation has come to them. So he's calling for their attention. Wake up if you're falling asleep during my sermon. Listen to me, he's saying. Okay? Now, here's what he says. The people and the rulers in Jerusalem fulfilled the scripture in condemning Jesus. The people and the rulers in Israel fulfilled the scripture in, in, in condemning Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, even though they could find no reason for death, they asked Pilate to execute him. They had no legitimate reason to kill him, except they just wanted to get rid of him. Do you understand? So they'll do whatever it takes. Even though they could find no reason for death, they asked Pilate to execute him. After that was fulfilled concerning his death, Jesus was taken down from the tree or the cross and buried. So he's making the point here that after this was fulfilled, he died on that tree and they took him down and they buried him. See, I think it's interesting when you look at the gospel presentations in the book of Acts, you need to recognize that they don't just say that Jesus died for people's sins. They don't just say that he was the sacrifice for people's sins. They make the point of showing that he was resurrected, that he's alive today. Because notice now, they, after he fulfilled, he was, they buried him. The next thing he says is, God raised him from the dead, and he was seen by many witnesses over many days. See, this is the important part that you have to understand about the, about the gospel. The gospel is not just that Jesus died for your sins, for your forgiveness. That's not the complete gospel. The complete gospel is, is that he was buried and he rose again on the third day. Why? Because he is the Son of God. Do you understand? Accepting the gospel is understanding who Jesus is. It's not the forgiveness of sins. That's not the complete gospel. The complete gospel is the person of Jesus Christ, that he died for them, was buried, and he rose again. That's what the New Testament presents, okay? That's what the New Testament presents. So, Paul declared that God fulfilled a promise in raising Jesus from the dead. Look with me at verse 32. Through 41. 
And we declare to you glad tidings that a promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified among all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Okay, so let's look what's going on here. He declares that God fulfilled the promise. Here's what he says. The scriptures declare that God would not allow the Messiah to see corruption. Now, does anybody understand what the word corruption here means? Anybody know what that means? Decay. That Jesus would not see decay. Now, unlike David who saw corruption in the grave, Jesus who was raised did not. Unlike David who saw corruption in the grave, Jesus, who was raised, did not. It is through Jesus that the forgiveness of sins is preached to them. It's through Jesus that the forgiveness of sins is preached to them. By believing in Jesus, they will be justified where the law could not justify them. By believing in Jesus, they will be justified where the law could not justify them. Here's the thing, folks. You could try to keep the Mosaic law perfectly. You could try to. You could eat the stuff they tell you to eat, do whatever they tell you to do, wear what they tell you to wear. You are not going to be able to keep that law. There is no way that you can justify yourself by keeping the law Period. Do you understand me? No way. Why? Because even in your intentionality of trying to keep it, you will ignorantly break it. Do you understand me? There's no way to keep it. No way to keep it. So the only one who justifies you is believing in who Jesus Christ is. Do you understand? Believing in who Jesus Christ is. So Paul warns them concerning the possibility of their unbelief. He warns them concerning the possibility of their unbelief. Now, let me go back to something I said a little bit earlier. Remember I told you Paul's method when he first went into a town was to focus on who first? Jews. Why? Because they had a basis of understanding. I'm going to explain to you why he did that. Okay? Here's what the law does. Remember Paul tells us this in Romans that the law exposes our need for a Savior. Why? Because the law exposes our sin. 
when you're dealing, when you first go to people who have some sort of understanding, whether they go to a, like, a, like any other denominational church or whatever, if, if they have some sort of background in the scriptures, they're going to have an understanding of one thing, and that is what? Sin. Now, they may have some weird, convoluted ideas about what they think can take care of that sin, but they do have a concept of sin. And so when you go to them and show them the Scripture, they have an understanding, so therefore they, have, they can come to a place where they recognize that even in their weird, convoluted thinking, well, if, you know, like today the thinking would be, well, my family's always gone to church, my grandma's gone to church, or I go to church, that doesn't help you, but people have that thinking that as long as they go to church, they're okay, right? Or as long as they belong to a certain church, they're okay. But when you, if you have a basis of understanding in the Scripture, you can then show them what the Bible says to them about their need for what? Jesus, the gospel. Now, here's the reason why. Because Paul knows, and he'll show us later, that when you go to somebody who has no understanding, they're not going to have a comprehension of what sin is. And we live in a postmodern world today where what you think is right and what you think is wrong may not necessarily be what others think is right and wrong. Do you, do you understand? Did anybody see that today? So the first ones you go to are the ones, Paul. first ones Paul went to until they rejected was the ones who, what? Had some kind of understanding. See, there's the principle there for you. Who do I share the gospel with? How about let's start with the ones who have some sort of understanding. But that doesn't mean you neglect those who don't. We'll talk about that later. So do you see what I'm saying? The point is, is they have to come to a place where they recognize the need for what? Forgiveness of sins. How do I deal with my sins? How do I deal with my guilt? How do I deal with my shame? Do you understand what I'm saying? How do I deal with that? And would you say that's the big need in our world today? Is that the big need in our world? How do I deal with stuff? Hey, we got a pretty big opioid uh, problem, don't we, in our area? You know, the BBC this week, if you, I, I watched, look at the BBC News. They had a documentary. I think this is radical. Listen to me. They had a documentary on the BBC about the opioid use in the U.S., Two of the four people that they interviewed, guess where they were from? Pennsylvania. Wow. Yes. Two of the four. In the, in, a, in a report about opioid use in the U.S., they get two of them from Pennsylvania. Do, do you understand? People, people don't know what to do with their need. Do you understand? That's why we've got to present to them, first of all, what the need is that they're trying to fulfill and realize that who is the only one who can fulfill it? Jesus. Jesus. 